This is the 162nd QuackCast. It is called Lime, Two Worlds Compared and Contrasted. References for this podcast can be found over at Science-Based Medicine from the March 20th, 2015th entry of the same name. The practice of infectious diseases, ID, is both difficult and easy. If you read my infectious disease blog on Medscape, you are well aware of my trials and tribulations in diagnosing and treating infections. ID is easy since, at least in theory, diseases have patterns and infecting organisms have a predictable epidemiology and lifestyle. So if you can recognize the pattern and relate it to the life cycle and exposure history, you can often make a diagnosis before the cultures come back. My favorite story is the time I was asked to see a young girl with endocarditis. The history was that she had a week of fevers, headache, and muscle aches that went away for five days. The symptoms returned for a week, then left for five days. Then the symptoms returned yet again. So I asked her, how was your vacation at Black Butte? The look of astonishment on her face as she asked, how did you know I'd been to Black Butte? was so satisfying. But the pattern was that of relapsing fever, and Black Butte is where all the relapsing fever in Oregon is located. And sure enough, her smear had Borrelia. A course of antibiotics and the spirochete was dead and gone. However, my son says all I ever do is say, get cultures and start vancomycin. How hard is that? Idea is hard because in practice, patients do not read textbooks and do not always present with the correct signs and symptoms. If you have an uncommon infection with an uncommon presentation, it can be difficult to diagnose. I get a fair number of these in consultation, and syphilis has been a particularly tricky one the last few years. While there is the classic progression from primary to secondary to latent to tertiary, patients often have particular manifestations of syphilis that bypass the classic findings and are sometimes hesitant to mention risk factors. Once you make the diagnosis of syphilis, of course, you give antibiotics and the spirochete is dead and gone. Relapsing fever and syphilis are two spirochetzial diseases that are both straightforward and difficult. Both have well-understood pathophysiologies, but that doesn't mean they are necessarily easy to diagnose, but both are easy to kill. Lyme is also a simple and complex disease. It's caused by the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi, at least in the United States. There are other Borrelia in Europe that cause Lyme disease, and worldwide there are at least 36 Borrelia species. And its epidemiology, pathophysiology, and treatment are well understood. Like all infections, it can be tricky and present atypically, but the science is clear. There is no long-term chronic Lyme disease that is amenable to long-term antibiotics. Let me mention here, not that it will make any difference, is I do not deny the symptoms and suffering of patients who have the diagnosis of chronic Lyme. They are often quite ill with something that is not, however, due to Borrelia. Unfortunately, in public discourse, science and reality do not always triumph over pseudoscience. Last year, New York State passed a bill to allow, quote, rogue doctors to be able to shill their non-evidence-based treatments without worrying about intervention. The bill, quote, prohibits the state office of professional medical conduct 
from investigating a licensed physician based solely upon the recommendation or provision of a treatment that is not universally accepted by the medical profession. These protections include, but are not limited to, treatments for Lyme disease and other tick-borne illness. A quack protection bill. A similar bill is now before the Oregon Legislature, House Bill 916. A public hearing was held on March 30th. I have no doubt that similar bills will be appearing in legislatures throughout the United States. They may be there now, unbeknownst to you. I only discovered the Oregon bill by serendipity. The bill, sponsored by the Oregon Lyme Disease Network, establishes, quote, disciplinary procedures that consider as a mitigating factor whether in diagnosing or treating Lyme disease or associated diseases, a professional who is facing discipline followed the evidence-based diagnosis and treatment guidelines not recognized by the boards, end of quote. Another quack protection bill. There are, by the way, two sets of Lyme treatment guidelines. One is from the Infectious Disease Society of America and is about to undergo an update from the 2006 guidelines. These are the ones I tend to follow and, in my opinion, are the more reality-based guidelines. The guidelines suggest, please here note the not, Selected antimicrobials, drug regimens, and other modalities not recommended for the treatment of Lyme disease. Those include long-term antibiotics, multiple courses of antibiotics, combination antibiotics, pulsed antibiotics, a variety of antibiotics that are not useful, including amantadine, trimethamine, sulfamethoxazole, metronidazole, vancomycin, carbipenems, fluconazole, isoniazide, empiric therapy for Babesia, antibartonella therapies, hyperbaric oxygen, fever therapies, intravenous immunoglobulin, ozone, cholestyramine, intravenous hydrogen peroxide, vitamins, magnesium or bismuth injections. These are all therapies not recommended by the Infectious Disease Society of America and are popular with some segments of the chronic Lyme community. I suspect, given the creativity of those who treat chronic Lyme, that this list will grow in the next version of the guidelines. These are the kinds of pseudotherapies, and there are many more, that people with the pseudo-diagnosis of chronic Lyme undergo. All useless, all costly, and occasionally fatal. Key in the IDSA guidelines is the avoidance of long-term and repeat courses of intravenous antibiotics. Long-term antibiotics are not benign. Besides allergic and other effects, secondary infections of the intravenous catheters can and has killed people. Quote, a 30-year-old woman died as a result of a large Canada parapsilosis septic thrombus located on the tip of a Groshong catheter. The catheter had been in place for 28 months for the administration of a 27-month course of intravenous cefotaxime for an unsubstantiated diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease. I kept thinking the 27 months was a typo, but it is neither a typo nor atypical in the chronic Lyme world.
25 years of infectious diseases have only served to emphasize that unnecessary intravenous catheters can only cause harm, but they remain one of the keystones of non-standard chronic Lyme therapy. The other Lyme treatment guidelines is from ILYADS, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. They differ from the IDSA and, as noted by ILYADS, quote, the panel recommendations differ from those of the IDSA. Different guideline panels reviewing the same evidence can develop disparate recommendations that reflect the underlying values of the panel members, which may result in conflicting guidelines. The IOM explains that conflicting guidelines are most often the result when evidence is weak, developers differ in their approach to evidence reviews, evidence synthesis or interpretation and our developers have varying assumptions about the benefits and harms. Conflicting guidelines exist for over 25 conditions and there is no current system for reconciling conflicting guidelines. End of quote. It may be more than a simple difference of opinion. But I would note that every recommendation in the Iliad's guidelines is based upon, quote, very low quality evidence. There are multiple differences in the two approaches to Lyme. First is the belief, and belief is what you have when you lack data. Unsupported by the preponderance of the scientific medical literature, that Lyme persists despite adequate treatment. The other major issues concern treatment. Iliad's supports prolonged intravenous antibiotics for the treatment of Lyme disease. Retreatment for patients with persisting symptoms after treatment and the use of adjunctive therapies including treatments of co-infections. All of these are not supported by the best Lyme literature. Iliad suggests a repeat course of intravenous antibiotics for patients who remain symptomatic. IDSA does not, and the best studies to date support the IDSA approach. Quote, there is considerable impairment of health-related quality of life among patients with persistent symptoms despite previous antibiotic treatment for acute Lyme disease. However, in these two trials, treatment with intravenous and oral antibiotics for 90 days did not improve symptoms more than placebo. And this is because antibiotics are basically effective in killing off Lyme, like they are for all spirochetes. Quote, there continues to be no evidence that viable Borrelia burgdorferi persists in humans after conventional treatment with antimicrobials. Most studies looking for living B. burgdorferi after treatment have failed, and those that do have severe flaws. Antibiotics eradicate this organism in animal models where you can basically culture the entire animal. Drop it in a blender, puree it, and look for Lyme. That's an exaggeration of what they do. But five days of antibiotics is enough to kill off all the Lyme. Quote, our findings further document the effectiveness of antibiotic therapy in eradicating cultivatable cells of B. burgdorferi irrespective of tissue or organ site. The organism does not hide out, protected in some organs, as some believe. As the 2014 NEJM review succinctly puts it, quote, several carefully conducted placebo-controlled randomized trials of prolonged antimicrobial therapy in patients with persistent subjective symptoms after treatment for Lyme disease have shown minimal benefit or none and a substantial risk of adverse effects. Consequently, prolonged antimicrobial treatment for subjective symptoms is not recommended in patients whose objective signs of Lyme disease have resolved in response to conventional therapy. 
consideration of other causes of persistent symptoms is warranted. In most of these patients, nonspecific symptoms resolve over time without additional antimicrobial treatment. When it comes to adjunctive therapies, Iliads is less proscriptive than the IDSA. Quotes, Iliads agrees that first-generation cephalosporins, intravenous hydrogen peroxide, and bismuth injections are not recommended. However, Iliads has concluded that it is premature to exclude other potentially beneficial therapies based on the evidence to date. Therefore, Iliads contends that the use of these agents should not be precluded until studies have demonstrated their ineffectiveness in the treatment of Lyme disease. That's a real difference in an approach to treatment. Given the potential dangers in all medical interventions, therapy should be precluded until studies have demonstrated their effectiveness in the treatment of Lyme disease. Lyme diagnosis is also mentioned in the Oregon Bill, although the Iliad's guidelines do not address issues related to the diagnosis of Lyme. Lyme is classically diagnosed by a two-step procedure, a screening ELISA followed by a confirmatory western blot, although the ELISA for antibodies against the C6 peptide may also be a useful diagnostic test. There are laboratories, in my experience, evidently beloved by naturopaths, that use unvalidated and unreliable non-standard tests for Lyme, of which there are many. This is because, quote, in the mid-1970s, the FDA began exempting certain diagnostic tests from its approval process. Many of these tests, developed, manufactured, and offered by a single lab, such as a hospital, were variations on common tests, low risk or devised for rare diseases, and could not be adequately validated. And Lyme testing has proliferated with all the subsequent false positives in patients and resultant unneeded therapies. Patients often do not realize that when a lab is CLIA certified, it has little to do with the validity of the testing offered, just as a restaurant being certified as sanitary says nothing about the quality of the cooking. The FDA recognizes this as a problem with many kinds of tests. Quote, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, responding to growing concerns that a host of diagnostic tests for illnesses from cancer to Lyme disease may be inaccurately identifying conditions, announced that it intends to regulate many of these tests. And there are now new guidelines for these tests that may result in less unreliable testing being performed. I heard a story at a meeting that a company developed a Lyme test, and everyone they tested tested positive. Rather than recognizing it as a flawed test, they concluded that everyone had Lyme disease. This is probably apocryphal, but it is the mindset of the Lyme world where, quote, no Lyme test has no false negatives, but it is important to understand that there is no such thing as a false positive. Also popular in the non-standard Lyme world is treating co-infections. I once had a patient tell me she had Babesia as well as Lyme, diagnosed by what I would call one of the creative Lyme labs by her naturopath. The accompanying photomicrograph had an arrow pointing to a clump of platelets that was misidentified as Babesia. While there is occasionally more than one infection spread by a tick bite, it is not common. Quote, often the controversial diagnosis of chronic Lyme is given to patients with prolonged medically unexplained physical symptoms. Many such patients are also treated for chronic co-infections with Babesia, Anaplasma, or Bartonella in the absence of typical presentations 
objective clinical findings, or laboratory confirmation of active infection. The medical literature does not support the diagnosis of chronic atypical tick-borne co-infections in patients with chronic nonspecific illnesses. The ILYADS guidelines do mention, quote, a survey of 3,090 patients diagnosed with Lyme disease found that the laboratory-confirmed cases of Babesia and Anaplasma were reported by 32.3 and 4.8% of respondents, respectively. Although given that this is a survey, we have no idea as to the rigor with which these diagnoses were made. They could very well have all been misidentified platelet clumps. The bill in Oregon is especially worrisome when combined with Health Bill 3301 that designates naturopaths as primary care providers. Not only will this bill remove consumer protections from providers with questionable therapies, it has the potential to expand the ability of pseudo-doctors with no standards to provide pseudo-therapies for pseudo-diseases. As we like to say, ND stands for not a doctor. The reason that the Iliad's approach is not embraced by other organizations such as the IDSA is that their recommendations are not based on the best understanding of the treatment and diagnosis of Lyme and they ignore or rationalize away high quality evidence that contradicts them. And the Infectious Disease Society of America is often vilified for supporting the best data and the best science. When not supported by science, organizations often resort instead to the law a poor way to adjudicate medicine and science. House Bill 916 in Oregon is no different than the attempt to legislate the value of pi. Removing consumer protections and institutionalizing substandard medical care will not benefit the health care of Oregonians or New Yorkers or any other state that passes such laws and will lead to the protection of those practicing substandard medicine and will protect those from being held accountable for their bad practice. As an aside, I will mention that I have no relevant affiliations or financial involvement with any organization or entity with a financial interest in or financial conflict with the subject matter or materials discussed above. The odd thing about the world of pseudomedicine is that most of the time we are accused of being big pharma shills prescribing vaccines willy-nilly to line the pockets of our masters. Except for Lyme, where we are accused of being insurance company shills not willy-nilly prescribing antibiotics to line the pockets of our masters. You can't win for trying. And that ends the 162nd QuackCast. References are available at Science-Based Medicine. Don't forget to go to edgydoc.com to find my growing multimedia empire of books and blogs and podcasts and apps. Oh my. And of course, write me glowing reviews on iTunes. It means a lot to this old man. Talk to you next time. Bye.